I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. People pay attention to blood pressure and cholesterol, but they rarely consider the balance of bacteria in their GI tracts. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Over the last decade, research has shown that the various types of microbes we host can have a profound impact on our overall health. For one thing, our microbiome helps shape our immune response. That's especially important during a pandemic like COVID-19. Our guest today is one of the world's foremost experts on the complex interactions between humans and their microbiota. What should you be feeding your gut bacteria? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, managing the microbiome for better health. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, one of medicine's tools against COVID-19 now has infectious disease experts puzzled. Paxlovid, a combination of two oral medicines, helps keep COVID patients out of the hospital. Now, though, there are numerous reports of rebound COVID following Paxlovid treatment. Some people who take the drug feel better and may even test negative only to develop symptoms and sometimes a positive test result several days after finishing the medication. This rebound phenomenon has not been extensively studied, and physicians do not know how to treat it. The manufacturer has suggested that people experiencing rebound take another course of medication. However, both the FDA and the CDC disagree. Instead, the agencies recommend that patients isolate themselves from others for five days from the start of new symptoms and wear effective masks for at least 10 days, just as if they had developed a new infection. A report from the VA suggests that some people experiencing rebound may be contagious, so it behooves them to take measures to avoid spreading the virus. When the COVID pandemic began, people worried about dying from the infection. Although that's still a risk, now the big worry is long COVID. This week, three different studies were published. The CDC reports in its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report that one of five adults between 18 and 64 years of age have persistent health problems caused by a previous COVID infection. That number is even higher among seniors. One in four people over 65 have lingering symptoms after they recovered from the coronavirus. Another study published in the Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology shows that post-COVID symptoms often last more than a year. These researchers were specifically interested in common neurological complications such as brain fog, tinnitus, numbness and tingling, fatigue, dizziness, blurred vision, and headaches. The third long COVID study was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. The researchers conducted comprehensive examinations and extensive testing on 189 people with persistent symptoms and 120 people without symptoms. They were looking for signs of the virus or other biomarkers that might explain the long-lasting complications. Unfortunately, none of their tests revealed a clear cause for long COVID. 
according to the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. Supplement manufacturers are supposed to tell the FDA whenever they introduce a new ingredient into their products. A new report suggests that many manufacturers have skipped that step. In fact, experts estimate that approximately 3,400 ingredients have entered the market without FDA notification. Dr. Peter Cohen, head of the Supplement Research Program at the Cambridge Health Alliance, says this is an indictment of both the FDA and the manufacturers. The FDA says supplement makers will have a six-month grace period to submit their ingredient reports without negative consequences. Some makers object that the FDA has not provided clear guidelines on what information must be submitted and exactly how to do so. The agency has offered draft guidelines twice before, once in 2011 and once in 2016, but manufacturers objected to them. It now says it will offer final guidance before the end of this year. Are you a morning coffee person? Millions of people around the world rely on that morning jolt to get their brains in gear. A new study published in Scientific Reports explains how coffee improves cognitive function. The scientists used EEGs, that's electroencephalograms, to determine functional connectivity of brain regions before and after caffeine consumption. In addition, the subjects completed several cognitive tests. After they drank their coffee, volunteers had improved executive function. This correlated with more efficient brain connectivity. The results reinforced previous data suggesting that caffeine improves attention, cognition, and memory. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Researchers used to think that the bacteria and other microbes in our digestive tracts were troublemakers. Then they realized that some of these so-called germs are essential for our health. Increasingly, scientists are discovering that the balance of bacteria, viruses, and fungi living in and on our bodies has a profound impact on our brains, our joints, our skin, and other aspects of our well-being. To learn more about the latest research on the microbiome, we turn to Dr. Aaron Elanoff. He is a professor of immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elanoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. His research focuses on understanding the complex interactions between humans and the bacteria that reside in their gut and how these interactions shape human health and disease. He joined us from his home in Tel Aviv. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Aaron Elinoff. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Dr. Elinoff, when I was in school, I'm thinking middle school or what we used to call grade school, I learned about something called symbiosis. It was a, a relationship between animals, so like maybe clownfish and sea anemones, uh, zebras and, and, and birds that would sit on their backs. And, and I think 
back in those days, we thought, oh, isn't that, isn't that quaint? Isn't that kind of interesting that animals have these intriguing relationships, but it doesn't have anything to do with our human condition? Well, your research would suggest that we need to rethink that, 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 that there is a relationship between the bacteria in our digestive tracts and, in fact, throughout our bodies and how well we function as humans. Can you tell us a little bit about this microbiome mutualism? Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, when I think of, of symbiosis, uh, I usually get a reminder uh, of, of visiting to nature museums of some sort or learning about this in, in a class. Um, but actually, there is a fascinating form of this of symbiosis that exists within each and every one of our bodies between our, our human self and a very large community of microbes that we call the microbiome that resides within our body from the moment we are born until the moment we die. And in the last 10 or 15 years, we were able for the first time to study these microbes that are very hard to grow. And it made us realize that these microbes actually constitute an integral part of our body and participate and even drive many critical processes that make us who we are. And this is a, a very significant form of symbiosis that drives human lives. Well, in the age of COVID, everybody is concerned about their immune system and, and how well it's working. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated, uh, especially because you are in part an immunologist and that, that is, you know, your, your, your basic research interest, how, how immunology and the microbiome interact. The, the microbes in our body, these uh, communities that we call microbiome, impact our physiology in many different ways. But one of the central effects that we and others have recognized to be carried on by these interactions with microbes in our body involves the immune system. In, in fact, in a decade or so of work, we were able to show that whole arms of our human immune system need our microbiome in order to function and to properly develop. Um, in a way, the microbes may be regarded as instructors that help our young immune system during childhood evolve into one which recognizes between or, or identified uh, a friend from foe and, and, and able to uh, live peacefully in times in which there is no threat um, affecting our body, but to really aggressively react when a pathogen, when a bad bacteria is introduced into our body and risks our own existence. So, so the microbiome is increasingly regarded as a critical, important guide or teacher that helps our immune system develop in the proper way. Dr. Elanoff, you and your colleagues have discovered some really amazing, unanticipated effects of the microbiome on our physiology. And I'm wondering if there was one in particular that surprised you. I think that um, this very young field that, that I was so lucky to engage with right from the very start does not cease to surprise us. Um, in almost any project that we carry on, we, we run into 
quite counterintuitive discoveries that are, are in many cases are very surprising. Uh, one of the big surprises that, that uh, took us years to um, believe in, and, and to develop is the fact that different people seem to carry a different and unique fingerprint of microbes that makes them different from one another. At first, this was very scary to us because, you know, we, we as scientists uh, always like uh, uniform, you know, platforms and systems. It makes our life uh, easier in studying them. And, and this variety of microbes in different people was, was very complicated to us. But in a few years, we've learned to appreciate that this individual signature of microbes that defined who we are and why we're different from our family members or our, neighbor, or our neighbors and colleagues, may explain why different people that carry a risk of developing um, uh, many different common diseases uh, in their human genes actually end up developing or not developing these illnesses or developing different features of these illnesses. In other words, we are increasingly uh, fascinated by the fact that our unique microbial signatures modify our uh, health traits or our tendency to develop different manifestations of diseases, even though some of us carry the very same genetic risk factors for these diseases. Uh, and this, to me, is, is a, a eureka moment that never ceases to surprise me. I was really intrigued to, to see a recent paper that you've written about cancer and the microbiome. Can you give us some sense of what's going on there? Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, we've started as a field... Um, in exploring the roles of the microbiome, mainly in metabolic diseases, in obesity, um, in fatty liver, in heart diseases, and very many uh, important advances and discoveries were made in this field. But in the last few years, this uh, young field has matured into exploring uh, diseases that seem to be, at least at, at first glance, uh, disconnected or not connected to, to microbial signals. For example, cancer has only been explored in the context uh, of the microbiome for, for the, the past few uh, years. And what this field has discovered is that the microbiome impacts different features of cancer development, progression, or response to treatment in different individuals. Um, in fact, the, the microbiome in some cases is suggested to be able to help us harness different treatment approaches into different individuals based on their unique microbial uh, signatures. Um, and this uh, has developed into a very active field um, in which many people are studying impacts of the microbiome on, uh, for example, cancer immunotherapy, which is one of the really exciting new developments um, in cancer treatment that enables to harness or to activate the immune system in a way that helps to cure cancer, even in terminally uh, ill patients. And, and what uh, we've discovered is that different signatures of the microbiome determine who are these patients who would be more or less responsive to such immunomodulatory treatment. And, and I guess one of the most fascinating aspects of your research, and, and we'll be talking about this in a bit, is that we can modify the microbiome either in a negative way or a positive way, in part depending on what we eat, but also exposed to the medications we're taking. Absolutely. I think one of the points that make microbiome research so exciting to so many basic 
scientist and clinician, um, is the fact that you may regard um, our microbial populations um, in our body as, as a neglected organ that carries within it a lot of knowledge, genes, and, and information that, that relates to our health or to our propensity of developing disease. Now, this information is additive to the information that is stored in our human genes. The human genome is exceedingly important, of course. Uh, the 20,000 or so uh, genes that characterize who we are are existentially important uh, um, in, in many, many aspects of, of our health. Uh, but unfortunately, at least in 2022, we are very limited in our ability to correct a genetic error or a mutation um, that we were born with, even if it causes um, a tendency to develop a horrible disease. In contrast, the genes that are stored in our microbiome are much more amenable to manipulation and treatment than the genes in our human genome. And this is one of the exciting prospects of this uh, very young microbiome field, because by um, studying it, we are increasingly able to find ways of changing the microbes and the information that they store by uh, personalizing our nutrition, by transferring into this microbial community um, new communities of microbes that make, in some contexts at least, make people healthier, or by using other means of um, getting rid of bad microbes or supplementing good microbes in ways that we hope would um, help make us uh, healthier or um, make us uh, less susceptible to disease. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Elenoff, Professor of Immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel. He's co-director of the Personalized Nutrition Project there. Dr. Elenoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. He's co-author of The Personalized Diet, the pioneering program to lose weight and prevent disease. After the break, find out how Dr. Elenoff and his colleagues studied the composition of the microbiome. They've discovered that the balance of bacteria and other microbes changes from morning to evening and from one day to the next. What are the implications of these circadian rhythms? How does our diet affect the microbiome? How should we be feeding our bacteria to help our microbes thrive? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. (music) 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today, we're discussing how our microbiome influences our health. Most of us do not pay much attention to the ecology of our digestive tracts, and yet the types and the health of our microbes have a profound impact on us. How can we nurture a healthy balance of bacteria, fungi, and viruses? Our guest is Dr. Aaron Elinoff. He is a professor of immunology at the Weissman Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elinoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. His labs at the Weizmann Institute and DKFC focus on deciphering the molecular basis of host microbiome interactions and their effects on health and disease. He's co-author of The Personalized Diet, the pioneering program to lose weight and prevent disease. Dr. Elinoff, I'm wondering how you actually study the composition of the microbiome. Can you give us some ideas of what sorts of techniques you use? Absolutely. So um, the microbiome or, or the, the presence of microbes in areas of our body, such as the gastrointestinal tract, has been known since the development of light microscopy in the, in the late 19th century. Uh, people uh, such as uh, Eli Mechnikov and others, the, the founding fathers of modern science and of immunology, put um, material coming from their own uh, excretions uh, under the microscope and they saw moving uh, microbes. So this was um, common knowledge already back then. However, these microbes that live within our body are very fastidious. They're very hard to grow and to study. Um, and for that reason, the microbes in our microbiome were neglected uh, for over a century. The breakthroughs that enable us to study them so extensively have emerged just 15 years ago as part of the Human Genome Project in which very big uh, national efforts, mainly in the U.S., have resulted in the development of what we call next-generation sequencing, which basically is, is a very advanced technology that enabled to take very large chunks of genetic material and Tease them apart letter by letter. And this enabled the, the sequencing of the human genome that incidentally has whole, all, uh, only been completed just a couple of months ago. The same technology was then adapted into studying the microbes in our body. In other words, rather than growing them, which was very difficult, we characterized the genetic material in our microbiome, completely uncover uh, what the information stored in their genetic uh, uh, material is. And based on this information, we're able to tell which microbes are in different microbiome configurations and what are their presumed functions. So, so this sequencing-based technique that started as part of the Human Genome Project is now extensively used in microbiome research. But this was only the beginning. And in the last 10 years, given the explosion in, in research related to the microbiome and its profound impacts on human health, New technologies have emerged that enable us to culture uh, microbes in our body that were previously considered to be unculturable. This opens up many different opportunities. 
and to also study the microbes on a more functional basis by studying the thousands of potentially active small molecules that they secrete, the proteins that they uh, generate. And this opens up a whole big array of possibilities in trying to understand the alphabet, which forms the language by which we and our microbes communicate through the secretion of these many different uh, molecules and what goes wrong in the communications that lead to a propensity of developing disease. This, this is interesting and important from a scientific perspective, but it also enabled us for the first time to understand what we need to supplement or to block to make the communication with our microbes go back to normal, thereby preventing or treating their contribution to disease. I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the ways in which you sample the microbiome. I, I seem to recall when we talked to you last, we asked about, you know, in essence, stool sampling and analysis, and you suggested that to really know what's going on, you've got to take a sample from the colon itself. Has that changed at all? No, it hasn't changed. It actually got reinforced by, by a number of, of, of studies following our original study um, that point to the fact that while we mainly uh, study the gut microbiome by collecting stool, which is accessible and, and is, 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 is a very you know, good way to assess the general composition and function of different microbiomes in different people, because it could be regarded as a sort of a common denominator of the different microbial communications that exist along our gut to be really accurate and to generate the signal that really connects to a different health and disease context, we found that generating a system that enables to invasively collect the microbiome from different regions of the gut gives us um, a better signal that better predicts uh, different health outcomes. Of course, this is much more difficult, invasive, um, and associated with adverse effects if done by colonoscopy and endoscopy. But there are many startup companies that are now making a big effort in generating new systems that would enable to sample our gut microbiome from within uh, uh, without having to you know, shove in uh, uh, colonoscopies, for example, by pills and, and other devices that try to collect this material from our, our longer uh, gut. So I think that the prospect of um, integrating the very accessible and important signal that comes from stool sampling, which is still the mainstay of our field with new technologies that would enable to sample ourselves from the inside would uh, further enable us to crystallize the contributions of the microbiome to health and disease. Dr. Elenaf, you've said that the microbiome of each individual person is, in fact, as individual as our fingerprints. And you and your colleagues have written that the um, microbiome actually changes. It's not the same from morning to night. It's not always the same from one day to the next. Can you tell us a bit about that fluctuation? Yes. You know, when we started working on trying to understand how our gut microbiome is impacted by um, our diet, uh, we mainly focused, like other people, on the content of, um, of, of what we eat. And, and we found that the, the composition of our diet is perhaps the strongest signal that um, contributes to the unique fingerprint uh, that characterizes um, different people's microbiome. But then we asked the naive and maybe an outrageous question, which is maybe the timing of our diet also has an effect 
uh, um, modulating different people's different microbiomes. So that led to a very ambitious uh, uh, study in which we were utterly surprised to um, discover that our gut microbial population actually changed their composition and their behavior at different times of a day along a 24-hour cycle. Um, and, and this circadian activity of microbes that completely live in the dark was, was absolutely surprising. How do they know that it's day or night and change their behavior so reproducibly without ever seeing sunlight? And, and the, the very simple answer to this uh, big question that took us years to find out is that the timing of our dieting, the time in which we eat, sends signals to the microbes that leads to their change of, of composition and behavior. In other words, when we are awake and we eat, the microbes change accordingly. And when we're asleep and we don't eat, the microbes uh, change to a completely different set of uh, behaviors. And this circadian rhythm is not only interesting, but it is also important because we found that people and animal models that were subjected to a, a chronic and severe disturbance in their sleep and wake cycles, for example, shift working behavior, developed a very prominent disruption of this normal diurnal or, or circadian behavior of their microbes. And, and this is important because for 70 or more years, the medical world has known that people who are engaged in shift work and other disturbances um, um, in their daily rhythms are subjected to a very dramatic risk of developing obesity, type 2 diabetes, and even cancer. Uh, but we never could figure out what the missing link was. Why do uh, uh, sleep-wake uh, disturbances lead to such disease risk? And, and our results, and now many uh, results that follow up on us from, from other groups, suggest that at least part of the answer lies in our gut microbiome. In other words, um, shift work behavior or severe jet lag or whatever you want to call it leads to a very profound disruption of the microbial diurnal activity, which directly contributes towards risk of developing of obesity, type 2 diabetes and other diseases, even inflammatory diseases. So what you're saying is the microbes obviously can't see that the sun has come up, but we wake up and we have breakfast and the microbes say, ah, it's morning. Time to get to work. Breakfast. <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> That's exactly what we saw. And in fact, for example, when we uh, took uh, um, mice and we force fed them either during the morning or only during night, we could completely shift the diurnal or the circadian behavior of their microbes by 12 hours. The microbes changed their behavior based on the eating pattern that we imposed on these mice. Now, mice would normally be eating at night and sleeping during the day. So I assume that to completely change their behavior, you you reversed their cycle. I'm wondering, what are the implications for this uh, circadian rhythm of the microbiome? Uh, uh, that's a great question. So, so many people, uh, you know, ask me, whether, you know, this could help them in their jet lag, which is something, you know, it's a sort of behavior that many people that uh, fly around uh, are concerned about. And, and what I always tell them is that, yes, we, we've tested quite extensively that jet lag is this behavioral pattern uh, involving sleep-wake disturbances that uh, impacts the microbiome. But th that's, you know, a, a, a relatively minor medical 
problem. You know, if, if you're severely jet lagged and you want to avoid it, you know, you can just choose to fly less, uh, which is good for many reasons. However, what do we do with people who have to engage in shift work uh, for their entire lives? For example, physicians, uh, nurses, military personnel, uh, uh, taxi drivers, and so on and so forth. These people develop the same sort of behavioral disturbances of their microbes that predispose them um, to um, develop uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other diseases. But we cannot correct this microbial behavior by telling them to um, you know, change their behavioral timing to uh, when they need to go to sleep after a night shift. So, so this constitutes a very common and very big unmet medical problem. What we've contributed and continue to contribute is a molecular level of understanding of how this microbial diurnal or circadian behavior and um, uh, its communication with the host are mediated through with a hope that we would be able to correct the disturbed behavioral patterns that, that characterize people um, that engage in shift works by more easy to manage uh, means such as uh, replenishment of missing signals that would enable people to continue uh, doing shift work without uh, being subjected to such uh, uh, profound long-term health risks. Now, we've talked to some experts about the microbiome, and they say it's all about the fiber. It's all about the food that the bacteria in our digestive tracts either love or hate. And they say, you know, if you're going to have a breakfast that is um, very high in carbs and sugar and, you know, you're, you're not feeding those bacteria what they really want to eat, which is a lot of really um, healthy fiber, that, that you're going you're gonna to make life hard for them. And I'm curious about diet and how what we eat impacts the uh, bacteria that should be thriving, but might in fact be starving? That's a great question. And and I would say that I both agree and disagree with this general notion that, that you highlighted. What I can totally agree with is the fact that after a decade and a half of microbiome research, this uh, maturing field, including our own research, strongly points to dietary content as probably being the most important set of signals that determine the composition and the function of our individual microbiome. So, so many different environmental factors impact uh, our microbiome, including the medications that we take and, and our stress levels and where we live and so on and so forth. But among them, what we eat is probably the most dominant factor that determines our microbial self. However, what I disagree with are these oversimplified notions that try to find a silver bullet, simple dietary intervention that would make our microbiome, quote unquote, healthier or not healthier. And and what we see in our extensive research is that A, you cannot be very judgmental uh, towards your microbiome and call it bad or good. You know, it it just doesn't work this way. Some microbes that are uh, bad in your body may be much less bad or even good in my body. The second most important concept is the personalization process. When when we take, uh, for example, fiber diet as, as an example, in average, I couldn't agree more that, you know, eating lots of fiber at a population level uh, would increase the uh, numbers of microbes that are able to ferment 
these fibers and, and to use them as an energy source. And these microbes in many contexts uh, could be better for our health. However, this is not true in all individuals and it is not true in all fibers. Um, we and others uh, who studied fibers as, as part of the large concept uh, which uh, we termed the personalized nutrition have found that, for example, if you treat different people with different diets uh, containing different fibers or fiber combinations, the microbes don't always behave the same uh, when they are exposed to these different fibers. And different individuals who have different microbes would likewise respond differently to different fiber combinations. So, so this personalization concept makes our life much more complicated and it makes it very difficult for me to, you know, to give large audiences uh, uh, very simplified their recommendations, which, which I usually refuse to do because I, I don't think the science uh, truly stands beyond them. But the encouraging part is that by integrating the very big data that we're now able to collect from different people's microbiomes, we're able to use um, modalities such as artificial intelligence in helping us predict a person's good or bad responses towards different dietary intervention. And this enables us for the first time to really give recommendations that are data or science driven and are unique among different individuals. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Elenoff, Professor of Immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel. He's co-director of the Personalized Nutrition Project there. Dr. Elenoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. His labs at both the Weizmann Institute and the DKFZ focus on deciphering the molecular basis of host microbiome interactions and their effects on health and disease, with a goal of personalizing medicine and nutrition. After the break, we'll find out how we can create a personalized nutrition plan to enhance our microbiome. Why should we care about the bacterial composition of our digestive tracts? How does microbiome composition affect our heart health or our ability to respond to COVID-19? Is there a connection between the microbiome and the way our brains function? You'll also find out about the significance of intestinal permeability. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Our topic today is the importance of something we often prefer not to think about. The billions of bacteria that live in our digestive tracts have a huge impact on our well-being. How can we manage our microbiome for good health? What happens when the lining of your digestive tract loses its integrity? What are the implications of intestinal permeability? Our guest is Dr. Aaron Elenoff, 
professor of immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv. He co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project there and is a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. He's co-author of The Personalized Diet, the pioneering program to lose weight and prevent disease. Dr. Elenoff, I am hearing you talk about personalizing nutrition. I hear that we absolutely must really consider each individual and each person's own reaction, each person's microbiome reacting to the food that the person is eating. When we talked to you previously, you described some very interesting research about the glycemic index, which actually is not nearly as um, generalizable from one person to another. Uh, and we were quite surprised about that. Well, we, we were intrigued to hear that some people react very badly to things like potatoes, mashed potatoes, with a high blood sugar reaction, and other people do much better. And, and ice cream is a problem for some and not so much for others. So what I'm wondering is, how would we go about figuring out our own optimal personalized nutrition? I think that's a very fair and relevant question, given the fact that um, the concept of personalized nutrition, which you know we first observed in, in 2015, has now been expanded and, and repeated by many different groups in many different uh, studies that include uh, peoples of different ethnicities and countries. So, so the, the very obvious question is, what do we do about it other than studying it? And, and there are different levels of action items that could be utilized. Um, the most uh, high-techy and, and kind of high-end uh, way to um, personalize our nutrition um, involves the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies that involve the um, characterization of a person's microbiome and a set of clinical features, and then analysis of this big data set using artificial intelligence that uh, uh, could come up with uh, recommendations that, that would be given to that individual. And, and those technologies, uh, which we first developed as, as, as a scientific means, are now increasingly available by different companies that are out there and you know um, offer this uh, as a fee-for-service. There are simpler ways to do this at your home without having to pay the associated prices. Uh, one of them involves uh, just purchasing a glucose testing uh, device that is available in your local pharmacies. It involves a, a very non-painful uh, skin prick and, and then measurement of your blood sugar levels. And people could take this you know, home uh, device and measure their blood sugar levels while they consume one of several typical diets that, that they usually eat in their normal daily routine. And they can actually document their own individualized glycemic response to different foods of interest. And now these uh, uh, people could uh, modify the combinations of foods to see which combinations actually result in a better glycemic response or a lower glycemic response and modify their diet in a do-it-yourself uh, manner. Of course, this is much more laborious and, and less complete than the high-techy uh, technologies that, that, of course, uh, are very interesting to us uh, medically and, and scientifically, but it enables people to do this without having to pay the, the, the cost associated with uh, such services. So there's a spectrum of things that one could do. The bottom line is 
that when we took thousands of people and gave them identical food, you know, people reacted very differently than one another. So, so assuming that you know what your bad or what your good uh, foods are uh, based on just common knowledge um, probably is not true. Now, a lot of our listeners are saying, well, why should we care? Why should we care what the bacterial composition of our guts are? Why don't we, why don't we just enjoy life? Have that ice cream sundae with the hot fudge on it. Have, you know, whatever breakfast we want, whether it's uh, Pop-Tarts or whether it's uh, eggs and uh, toast. And, and I'm, I, I'm kind of moving in the direction of, okay, what are the consequences of our microbiome for our heart, for things like COVID-19, uh, for things that, that, that people really care about, uh, you know, their risk of having a heart attack, for example? I, I think it's, it's a great question, and I'll divide my answer into two parts. First of all, if we start with the glycemic index and, and making your blood sugar levels controlled after you eat different meals, why is that important to us? That's important to us because normalizing or improving your glycemic responses, your blood sugar spikes after eating meals is proven to improve not only your chances of developing diabetes, but also improves or reduces your chances of developing obesity. So there is a direct connection that has been found by, by, by really a multitude of studies in the last decade that completely and, and utterly proves that, that improving your blood sugar controls over time is, is exceedingly important to your health. And um, not doing so predisposes you to develop obesity, type 2 diabetes, and many of their potentially devastating complications, such as heart disease, a tendency to develop strokes, and, and so on and so forth. So this connection has been uh, proven beyond doubt. The problem is that in decades of trying to harness nutrition towards reducing this risk, and, and this risk is, is actually regarded by many to be an epidemic because the numbers of people suffering of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease is exponentially increasing. Um, but harnessing nutrition has, to be honest, really failed in the last decades because you know we, we didn't succeed in, in, in figuring this out. Um, and by understanding the personalization of diet and how we can harness data coming from the microbiome and from clinical measurements that are routinely uh, uh, performed in our clinic towards uh, a science-driven set of recommendations that would help our nutrition better in reducing these risks, I think is, is exceedingly important to our health. Beyond this, and, and now I'm, I'm moving to my second, uh, the second part of my answer, if, if you ask specifically about the microbiome, we are increasingly finding that the microbiome is contributing to many different diseases that are not necessarily intuitively connected to the microbes in our body and are not even impacting the organs in which the microbes live. So, for example, uh, you mentioned heart disease. In addition to the indirect effects um, that, that are contributed by the microbiome through its regulation of, of blood sugar uh, of control that, that is, is an important risk factor for heart disease, um, a, a fascinating set of, of, of studies have shown that a combination of the diet we eat and how it is degraded by different microbes in our gut 
contributes to the ability of our uh, body to respond to microbial products that swim into our heart and impact our risk of developing atherosclerosis and heart disease. In other words, the microbes could in some cases be regarded as a giant biochemical factory that exists within our body and works 24-7 as long as we're alive. And this factory generates thousands of small molecules that can swim into our body and affect our cells and our organs in places that are miles away from where they were made inside this factory. And this makes us start to understand how the microbiome may impact diseases such as arthritis and uh, ALS and, and potentially other uh, uh, brain disorders, uh, diseases that occur really in, in, in remote places to the um, location of where the microbes are, but still are impacted by the microbes through their biochemical property to generate these unique molecules that impact disease processes. Let me ask you about the connection between the microbiota and the brain. How does that work? Because as you said, it seems like the brain is really pretty far away from the digestive tract. It is. It is very far away. But intriguingly, there is more and more information and amazing studies that suggest that despite this long distance between the microbes in our gut and processes that occur within our central nervous system, within our brain, such an effect in some cases may be profound and important. And, and, and how does this happen constitute a really major question in the field? Um, I can tell you some examples of how this may happen. Um, our own work on, on um, um, a neurodegenerative disease called ALS have found that the microbes in our gut can modify different uh, uh, small molecules that then swim into the brain where they can impact motor neuron function and modify disease processes. So that's one way uh, by which microbes that live in one place could impact uh, a process occurring in the brain despite the fact that they're very long distance. Another connection between the microbes and the brain is mediated by a set of uh, neurons, a set of nerve cells that actually connect our central nervous system to the second largest nervous system in our body, which surprisingly uh, is located in the gut. Um, so these nerve connections, which were uh, poorly studied for so many decades, are increasingly shown to be impacted by signals that come from the microbiome and also to impact how the microbes themselves uh, behave. So, so this really peculiar and amazing connection, which uh, some people term the brain-gut axis, is another way by which microbes that live in the gut, for example, could impact or be impacted through activation or suppression of these neuronal networks and, and thereby impact uh, a brain uh, disorders. We keep hearing from some what are often referred to as alternative health practitioners in the U.S. that there there's this condition that they refer to as leaky gut or as uh, some gastroenterologists refer to it as intestinal permeability. And that is to say that that compounds that shouldn't be getting into our bloodstream are because of maybe non-steroidal anti-inflammatory arthritis drugs or some other, you know, dysbiosis problem in our digestive tract. 
and that once these compounds get into our bloodstream, that they may trigger autoimmune conditions or other negative consequences. Any thoughts about that? Well, I'll start by saying, and now I'm speaking as a physician, uh, at least in my previous life, um, that the concept of alternative versus classical medicine is, is, is one which, you know, I personally don't accept uh, uh, for the reason that I review uh, medical treatment as either evidence-based or non-evidence-based. And, and in some cases, what people call alternative medicine is more or less evidence-based, so I accept it based on the evidence. With respect to leaky gut, I would uh, classify this as, as, as actually evidence-based. And we increasingly um, find that a common denominator of the impact of the gut microbiome on the processes that lead to many systemic disorders and disease constitutes the barrier of the gut or the ability of the gut to withstand infiltration of molecules that come from the microbes um, which uh, may be modified at different health and disease contexts. In other words, uh, when we're healthy, in many cases, the gut is able to form a barrier that prevents many of the molecules that are generated by our microbes and are not necessarily good for us from penetrating our almost sterile body. But during disease processes, in many cases, we see that this barrier is disrupted, thereby leading to an influx, to an entry of these microbiome molecules into the systemic circulation where they can impact in a bad way many cells and organs in our body. And, and this barrier dysfunction or leaky gut, as some people call it, is increasingly regarded as a, a contributor to, to microbial co contribution to disease or mi microbial uh, processes that, that may uh, lead to disease processes. Um, interestingly, this barrier, which for many years we regarded as a static kind of wall or or a non-regulated barrier is now slowly but consistently decoded. And we understand that this barrier, like most other important things in our body, is impacted by the microbes, by the host, by, by the immune system. And by reaching such level of understanding, uh, we are hopeful, and, and there's some examples already out there showing this, that in cases in which leaky gut is present, we may be able to reverse it and to prevent the adverse effects that are associated with such leaky barrier. Dr. Elanov, I wonder if you could comment about the, the pharmaceuticals that we take with such regularity and, and such passion. I mean, antibiotics, we love them. We take them sometimes when we don't even need them. There are also these proton pump inhibitors that suppress acid, which... Um, now are available over the counter without a prescription or a doctor's supervision. We pop non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen, naproxen, uh, like candy, and then artificial sweeteners. We just love them because we think, oh, you know, I can have the sweetness without paying the price. How, how do these drugs and, and this kind of food additive impact our microbiome and our intestinal permeability? I, I think that's a very important question. I, I would start by saying that antibiotic treatment has transformed human lives um, you know, within less than a century from their discovery uh, by tackling the, the, the leading causes of, of human disease and mortality for, for thousands and millions of years, which are uh, infections. So, so in general, I regard antibiotic 
discovery and usage is, is a big miracle for us that enabled us to prolong our life substantially within a short period of time. However, we are increasingly aware that the extensive and sometimes non-justified use of antibiotics is also um, associated with a very heavy price that we pay. And one of the biggest um, prices that we pay is, is the fact that antibiotics wipe out uh, and disrupt the composition of our gut microbiome. And, and by doing so, um, the, the, this use, when it is not justified, subjects people to the chronic health risks associated uh, with a disrupted uh, gut microbial community. So this yin and yang um, is, is something that, that we need to consider or physicians need to consider when they prescribe antibiotics to the patient. And, and my recommendation is always to stick to the indications that are science and medically based to minimize the use of antibiotics to the shortest possible periods, uh, thereby avoiding this unnecessary price that we pay at time uh, to their widespread use. With respect to the many other medications that, that we take, uh, sometimes over-the-counter, sometimes prescribed, we are increasingly um, discovering that um, many of these medications impact the microbiome in, in ways that are at times uh, surprising. In some cases, the microbes degrade in some people these medications and make them less effective. In, in other uh, examples, the microbes actually degrade these medications into their active ingredients, and without the microbes, the, the, these medications would not work. So, so um, again, in, in regarding the microbiome as this huge factory that sees all of these uh, compounds that we call drugs and, and, and modifies them, uh, one understands that by just taking medications because, you know, we feel like it, we may uh, cause uh, um, harm to the microbes um, and thereby impact our, our health. Artificial sweeteners are just another example of a dietary compound that uh, we take because you know, we, we thought for many years um, that they are very sweet but do not impact our body because our body is unable in most cases to, to uh, degrade them and therefore they're uh, not associated with a caloric price. Um, so people took them for their uh, sweet uh, taste. What uh, we've discovered, and, and now this has been followed by many others, is that the microbes, in contrast to our body, can react to these compounds. And this, like anything that we find with respect to microbial uh, um, uh, responses, is individualized. So some people exposed to some of these sweeteners actually respond in a way that changes their microbiome towards configurations that uh, uh, could adversely impact their health, um, telling us that life is much more complicated that we, uh, th than we originally contemplated, and we need to understand better these interactions between our food, um, the compounds that we integrate into our food, including medications, including sweeteners and others, and how they uh, impact our microbiome and how these communications and impacts may adversely or non-adversely impact our, our health. And uh, so recommending that uh, one would take uh, sweeteners because they're inert to the human body, at least uh, based on the data that, that we've uh, generated, is, is simply incorrect. Dr. Elenov, I wonder if you could look into your crystal ball and tell us where you think your research, your laboratory, and your colleagues are taking us in the field of the microbiome and what we might expect in terms of practical, pragmatic outcomes in the future. To make a very long answer uh, short, I would say that 
the biggest challenge, but also the biggest promise in our field, as, as the, at least the way I see it, involves the maturation into a mechanistic understanding of how microbes communicate with our body in health and in disease. And I think if, if you ask me where I want to be and where I think we will be as a field in five or 10 years from now, I strongly believe that we would be able to decode on a molecular level how the microbes drive health and disease in, in a very elaborate manner, in, in a very molecular, in a very causative manner. And, and by reaching such causative level of understanding, rather than just relying on associations and correlations, which were the hallmarks of our field when we were young and immature, by, by reaching such causative level of understanding, we will be able to identify therapeutic targets within the microbiome and, or within the communication channels that form the language between us and our microbes that would be able to, manageable, to, to be manageable as new classes of treatment for common human disease. This is my hope and this is also my belief. Dr. Aaron Elinoff, thank you ever so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. It's always a pleasure to be speaking to you. You've been listening to Dr. Aaron Elinoff, Professor of Immunology at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel. He's co-director of the Personalized Nutrition Project there. Dr. Elinoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. His labs at both the Weizmann Institute and DKFZ focus on deciphering the molecular basis of host microbiome interactions and their effects on health and disease with the goal of personalizing medicine and nutrition. He's co-author of the book, The Personalized Diet, the pioneering program to lose weight and prevent disease. You'll find links to his most recent papers from our website. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1302. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast contains a question and an answer that just wouldn't fit into this broadcast. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have a regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, 
please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.